Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Conversation isn't, yes, I agree. Brilliant. Yes, I agree. Brilliant. Well, join me next time. I'm keeping the company where I agree with people. Um, so, but that, and also I think it's a really good sign when you know people who disagree with you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Balancing Acts. In this conversation, I talk to comedian and writer Athena Cableno. Hello, I'm Steve Whiteley and welcome to Balancing Acts, a series of conversations with an array of creatives. We talk about their journey, the struggles they faced whilst progressing their career, strategies they use to unlock their creativity, how they balance their career with their personal lives, what impact this has had on their mental health and lots more. Athena was a member of the BBC Comedy Writers Room 2019 to 2020. She was also awarded the BBC Felix Dexter Bursary for BAME Up and Coming Comedy Writers in 2020. She's written for the likes of Horrible Histories, The Russell Howard Show, Radio 4's The Lenny Henry Show, Dead Ringers, News Quiz, News Jack, The Now Show, and she was also the lead writer for Sketchtopia. Athena is also the founding member of Do The Right Scene, a London-based improv group, and she's featured as a guest on Mock The Week and as a regular co-host of the Guilty Feminist. She also writes pieces for The Guardian, Time Out and Stylist Magazine and is the host of her podcast, Keeping Athena Company. And remember, if you like this episode, if you like Balancing Acts, then please do rate and review it on Apple. That would be lovely. Absolutely lovely. Oh, and uh, one thing that I haven't been plugging, but uh, I've decided I'm going to from now on is my mailing list. If you would like to keep up to date with everything I'm up to, then you can just head to my website, stevewhitely.co, that's W-H-I-T-E-L-E-Y.co, and you'll see there a little thing will pop up, a little message to subscribe to my newsletter and just type in your email address and uh, hey presto, then you will be uh, definitely not spammed. You'll just be updated on a pleasantly a pleasant, pleasant sort of weekly basis. Nothing more than that, uh, I assure you. And uh, that's it. That's it for now. That's the, that's the plugging over with. So without further ado, over to Athena. Perfect. It's interesting, though, for people, you know, like you that are doing so many different things. It's not like a normal job. And so like, do, no. how, do, how do you how do you prioritize your different projects and so <clears> Um. I prioritize them by payment. 
<laughs> which is yeah. which is paying me the most and which is paying me more promptly um and i guess obviously like there were things that are paying nothing now but in the future i hope they will pay me dividends so i try to invest time in my own projects that no one cares about at this moment in time but they might care about in the future i mean i don't know i think I think when you're busy with personal and professional things, a lot of it is quite instinctive. You wake up in the morning and you think, what am I going to do today? And that will be dictated by a huge range of factors, like, you, you know, what's conflicting, what's necessary, what's unnecessary, what is an indulgence, what someone is waiting for, what's overdue. Um, a lot of it is just, I'm an incessant list maker. I've got lists on my mobile phone. I've got lists on my laptop. I've got paper lists. Um, all kinds of lists and I just do work. Do you use any through. listing um, apps or software like one? I don't, no, no, nothing. Oh, you would nothing love. More complicated. <sighs> like I used to use one list. Just, oh, Evernote's really? great. Yeah, I tried using Evernote. I don't like to complicate it. I like a really? very unengineered list of things. It's I do have a bullet journal. My bullet journal, I okay. look at it every month and I have headlines for every month that I'm like, these are the big ticket things I've got to do every month. So bullet journals will be the most organizing I do, but I don't even do it properly. Like, right. I don't have like future log and all that shit that you're supposed to do. Um, but lots of lists and every day, lots of like, you know, committing to a kind of today I'm going to achieve X, Y, and Z. And then you just stumble along. And then do you tick it off at the end of the day if you don't? Oh, I love ticking off. I love crossing great, isn't it? things off a list. Yeah, that's one of my favorite things, crossing things <laughs> off a list. So that's, that's, that's a lovely, um, a lovely bit of serotonin boost for me. Yeah. And so with stand up out the way now, have you then just been shifting the majority of your focus now on writing and, and developing projects scripted? Yes. So it was really, I've been saying this a lot on the record. It was really fortunate for me to be writing or to be stepping up and writing when I did. Because I'm, you know, I didn't foresee the pandemic, but when it came, I already had lots of stuff teed up just randomly. So I was really fortunate. Um, had it been, had that, had I not been investing time in in developing that side of of, of the craft, so we say, yeah, yeah, I'd yeah. have been fucked. <laughs> I'd have been really uh -huh. fucked, to put it bluntly. Um, so um, bluntly and accurately, um, and generally speaking. I mean, I hate to say this because I love stand-up. It's my first love. But I think people want writers more than stand-ups to the point where they want stand-ups to be writers. Mm. You know, most stand-ups will know, and you'll perform yourself. Most people will know when they perform, they'll meet people in industry. And people in the industry won't say, come and do 20 minutes for me. They'll say, do you have a script? Mm. You know, they'll say, do you want to contribute to the sketch show? Or, or maybe do you want to do panel show work, which isn't stand-up, mm. which you have to remember. So... It's, it pains me to say it because we spend so long learning how to be stand-ups and putting so much time and effort into it. But, um, you know, the script writing work tends to lead to more work. Whereas when you, you know, you do a comedy set and you're really good, you get off the stage and that's kind of the end of it. But you do a writing job and you do really good, your name gets said in another room and then you get another offer. So writing work tends to breed writing work. Stand-up just tends to breed depression. <laughs> <laughs> angst and all kinds of things but it's a little harder to move I think it's a little harder to move forward and also that's to do with the fact that writing is so much harder so I think when people find a good writer they feel the the tendency is to kind of value that skill a bit more excuse me a bit more whereas there's there's way more stand-ups than there are writers so stand-ups hard but also there's loads of us I mean I have to concede that there's there's loads of us yeah but then a few spaces <laughs> 
Yeah, I guess there is, but then there's probably there's different elements, I guess, of of skill sets, right? Mm, so yes. the ones right at the top, that's not easy to accomplish that level of let's say expertise and you know and skill sets. And I guess the mm. same applies to writing. There's lots of writers, but there's writers of different abilities. And you I mean, something like for instance, it just came to the top of my head, succession. I watched mm. that and I was just like wow that's incredible yeah how it's did that come out of his show. brain and well we know how it came out i don't know if you aware. it's pretty much the, the murdoch story yeah for sure so that's how but it's really clever how how they've done it i guess brilliant it's um, brilliant did you see the murdoch documentary on, on that's iPlayer? exactly that's exactly what i watched funny right. enough yeah right. um and uh then it's amazing how but then it's it's amazing how they copied it but they didn't it wasn't like Diana, a Channel Five Diana documentary, you know, yeah, where it's, yeah. it it was it was still its own story. Um, and I love what they did with this with the with the son. I just I just love his his story arc. It's the, so the rebellious son. Yeah, the the, very, the one who was supposed to get it, then he didn't get it anyway. That's what I mean. Yeah, um, I was trying not yeah. to do a spoiler. The, I was like, yeah. Yeah. Was oh yeah. yeah, that was a spoiler. Oh, you can edit that. That's oh, fine. Look, yeah, it's fine. an old show now. It got BAFTA. Yeah, it's true. I mean? It's like, true. It's out there. If you haven't seen it by now, you're done. But that, I just thought his story arc was great. Um, and uh, old Scottish guy, I should remember his name, just such a great actor. Um, so, yeah, yeah, Brian Cox. Right, Brian Cox, yeah. yeah. But the, the writing on Succession is just, just outstanding. Yeah, It's phenomenal. Um, so, so now that you have, you've moved into this world and mm. lockdown has changed things for everyone, obviously we've hardly done any stand-up. I, do you think when things eventually start to go back to some... Uh, level of normality you'll continue down this path or will you spend your time equally as you were between writing and and stand-up um i'd like to think i'd go back to performing probably not as often okay probably not um there are probably things that i might have said yes to a year and Mm. a half ago that i might not say yes to now purely because the time i have other ways other ways i can fill that time i would spend so um, for example, I, I had a gig in Glastonbury actually, which, which is a lovely gig, um, which I was going to do, I think the March or April of the, of the lockdown starting and obviously it got cancelled. Yeah. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I don't know if I'd go back to that if they rebooked it, <laughs> you know, like it's, it's a three and a half hour drive to yeah. get there and then you're on stage 20 minutes and it's a three and a half hour drive to get back. And in that time, I, there were probably other things that I could achieve. Um, so it's, yeah, I think having more things to competing for my time means I would think twice about some of those long drives, um, you know, for not that much for or for, you know, it's not that you don't get paid a huge amount of money for a lot of stand-up. And then when you do get paid a huge amount of money, sometimes by the time you pay for your hotel, your fuel, your baby, your babysitter, um, or your incidentals, there's not a huge amount left. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it, it sadly become a more a practical reality means I probably would spend a lot less time on the circuit. Rather than I'd, I want, I would like, I'd love to do what I used to do before, but it, it's, it makes less practical sense now. Yeah. And also I think there's a, you know, there's a case we said for sometimes you've got to go where the momentum is. And yes. from, from what I can sense with you, there's a lot of momentum on the writing side and you're, you're, and you're in demand now as, as a TV writer on scripted and non-scripted projects. And it's difficult to, to go against that when that's, when that, when that energy is there. Yeah, you've got to say yes to what people are asking you to do. Sure. So, you know, people are asking me to write, so I have to say yes to that. And I think, um, like I said, work breeds work. So writing work breeds writing work. Um, people obviously aren't asking any of us to do stand-up. Um, obviously, there's a bit of TV work and a bit of radio work, but not a huge amount. 
So there's nothing to say yes to. Um, and it's weird. I don't know how, I mean, what's going to happen when lockdown stops? Are the comedy clubs just going to just come running to us? Like what's going to happen? It's going to be a weird time for a lot. And also the circuit's going to shrink. There's a lot of places that won't be booking. There's a lot, you know, and people will go to like, what I'm trying to say, I think there'll be fewer spots and people will just want reliable comics. They're not going to yeah. be like, yeah, let's get some fresh talent in. Not that I'm a fresh talent. I'm pretty, I'm pretty around for a fairly, you know, bit now, but you know, there's going to be, people are going to be more reluctant, I think, to, to, to maybe put on acts that they feel they don't know so well or acts yeah. that they don't feel are established. They want the old standards, the people who are just been on the circuit for 15, 20 years, even longer than that. So um, with that reality as well, it makes sense to, to just say, writer comedian as opposed to comedian writer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's that sort of forever dilemma of trying to figure out what to call yourself because I switch mm. it up all the time. Yeah, um, but you're a poet, right? I mean, I would never call myself that. I would never. I would say character comedian if it came to stand up. But then yeah. sometimes I do stand up not in character. So and then outside of similar to you do other things as well. So I don't know. I mean, those, those days are gone now, I think, unless you've got like a nine to five job, you don't need to necessarily define what you are. You're different things to, according to the people you're working with and the projects that you're you're working on. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think. The beautiful thing about stand-up, and that's why I definitely encourage people who haven't, who want to be creative but don't know what to do. The beautiful thing about stand-up is it's kind of like um, an access all areas pass to different creative endeavours. Do you know what I mean? Like, totally. It's amazing how you can get into acting through stand-up. You can get into script writing through stand-up. You can get into plays through stand-up. Um, you can get into being in adverts and earning yourself 20K for a day's work through stand-up. Yeah. You know, there's a huge, there's huge, you can become a writer. So many people have written books over lockdown. It's unbelievable. Um, so it, the word comedian now just means you do something that makes people laugh at some point. Uh, you know, sketch writer, you could be a social media influencer. And I haven't started off in stand-up. So definitely keep an, I think it's good that we keep an open mind as to what we are and what we do. Um, 100%. Ultimately, we have to create stuff and we've got paid for it and we've got to get paid for it. And that's the best way to do it. Just like keep an open mind. Yeah, you hit, you hit the nail on the head. That was, I think, the biggest attraction for me because before I was working in music and I was doing radio presenting and, and, and those that, that kind of things. And I felt there was a certain level of restriction in terms of creativity. And I was like, what, what is mm. the thing that I can do? Mm. And I've been doing improv, but yeah, once you get into comedy and you sort of start moving in that direction and then the doors open and, and it really is like you can do anything really if you if you decide to obviously yeah work it's, I, I'm just amazed at some of the places I found myself and some of the things I found myself doing and it all started off because I spent five minutes on a stage you know saying silly telling silly jokes about nonsense you know what I mean like it's like yeah. I'm like wow starting from that small bit of cr nonsense that you, you, you know you just stand on the stage and play to silence and there'd be like three people in the room and a dog and you know and it just and that was a, like sort of seven or eight years ago and now it's like oh now I do all this stuff that I never would have dreamed of so comedy does lead you to strange places that yeah. you would never have imagined um, yeah. but only if you're my only if your mind is open to to kind of faking it till you make it so I mean like it's just like oh Finis, you want to come in this writer's room yeah yeah, yeah. okay <laughs> I don't know if I can do that, but I'll try. Or do you want to do improv? Okay, yeah, sure. Why not? 
but yeah, so you definitely there's a bit, definitely a bit of faking it till you make it when you were when you open yourself to all these labels that you're not necessarily qualified to do. When you dip your toes in the water and to that new endeavor, do you suffer from imposter syndrome? And if so, how do you just forge ahead? Yeah, I suffer from imposter syndrome from the old endeavors. Okay. <laughs> like <laughs> even in my old day job, I had imposter syndrome. I think it's. Um, it's, I think I'm starting to think that, I don't know if anyone psychologically or academically studied it. I'm starting to think that it's just, I think cavemen got it. You know what I mean? Like, should I be chasing a lion? Maybe I should be eating vegetables. <laughs> like, I just, I just feel like it's a natural human instinct to have a helicopter moment where you float up outside your body and you look down and you think, this doesn't feel right. I'm not good enough um, or whatever. And that, that comes from respecting the art form because, you know, mm-hmm. I used to, I w- I've seen Chris Rock at the O2 and I saw him years and years ago. So obviously the, before I'd even thought I'd been a comedian and um, now I'm a comedian. So it's like knowing I've got the same job title is this guy that I paid 70 quid to see like 10 years ago. That's weird, right? Mm. Okay, fine. I'm not at the O2. No one's paying 70 quid to see me. But the point is I've, we got the same job title, right? So um, you're going, that's going to give you imposter syndrome. Um, and my answer of how to get over it, and so this is always my answer, is that just have a conversation with yourself before any of this happened. Mm. You know, have a conversation with yourself 10 years ago. And that person 10 years ago wouldn't have imagined that they'd be writing for like Lenny Henry or, you know, I just got set and have, I just got set a food hamper from a client. This hamper, I'm on a fucking diet because I have the baby weight and I just got sent cheese and wine and all sorts of shit from a happy customer. And this customer is somebody I would never imagine even knowing my name, you know, oh. even a year ago. So that's what I do. I tell you, what would, 30 year old Athena be really impressed by mm. when they have a conversation with 39 year old Athena and it's actually it's like it's like oh okay now don't get me wrong I there are so many more things that I need to achieve so it's almost like you have to have a conversation with your past self and then you have to have a conversation with your future self to make sure you never rest on your laurels but mm. that conversation with your past self is really important especially when you come I don't know what your background is, but because I have a very professional background and I didn't have to leave it, like and there was nothing wrong with my job. I, I always have to remember that it's, I did this because for a reason, because it's worth it. So, okay, fine. The older thing, probably had a bit more money and was a bit more financially secure and all that stuff. Um, but at the same time, like this Athena, this life is way more Instagrammable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a way more Instagramable life, you know. And no one was sending me fucking hampers when I was 30 years old. So, and no one was gonna. So, um, that just happened today. It was a really nice surprise. Um, so that's what I do. That's that. That'd be my advice to anyone who's got imposter syndrome. And you put, most people do have it. It's a normal thing. It's normal. Yeah, and you can. It's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that this is just how I'm feeling, and everyone else in the room is super confident right now. You mm. could be in a writer's room <clears> and sort of trying to pluck up the courage to say something, but inevitably there's going to be other people sitting around that table that are also thinking the same thing. Yeah. And I think it's, it's not about having it or not having it. It's about dealing with it or not dealing with it. Um, uh, and that to be, I was funny enough, I was having a conversation yesterday with the manager and what, what I come to the conclusion was, was that I, I still feel the same insecurities as I did a year ago or two years ago. But the difference now is like, I've kind of got, I've just achieved a bit more, you know? So when I think to myself, I don't want to say this, I feel stupid. I think, hold on a minute, I've got, I've got credentials now, mm. you know? So it's, it's almost like as you progress, you can find practical and um, compelling arguments that defeat the imposter syndrome. Does that make sense? You can say, oh, yeah. you've got imposter syndrome, but look at, look at what you did last month or look what you did last year or look at this, look at what's going on. Whereas I think 
so it's not like it gets better, but it becomes in the imposter syndrome becomes more incredulous as you get on. So it's just yes. always really impa- important to just be really realistic about you know what you're capable of, not from from a sense of belief, but from a sense of this is my CV. Does that make sense? Yeah, so totally. Just always at the forefront of your mind, have your have your credentials sat there waiting waiting to propel your map propel words out of your mouth when those feelings of doubt creep creep in. Yeah. Um, which That's- is what I've been doing recently. Uh, just like, oh okay, this is this is a career now. And it's yeah. not a made up career. You know, it was a made up career a few years ago. I was just like bullshitting my way into places. But now I'm not bullshitting my way into places. It's actual there's actual kind of there's real work that underpins that and you know there's a real body of work emerging so but it's a long slog and when i say that there'll be a room that i'll be in in two months time where that body of work is insignificant and i'll be back to square one again but that's that's for sure that's the thing that i've been thinking about there's just levels there's always levels and it's that fine line between being a combination of grateful but also giving yourself a pat on the back for how far you've come but then also but not resting on your laurels and go yeah this is good but i'm not getting too big for my boots because there's so many more levels yeah it's like that guy who climbed our capitan a couple of years ago and he didn't use yeah. any ropes and it's like getting halfway up there is a really big achievement do you know what i mean it's like wow but then you can't really stop because you're going to fall off the bloody El capitan and die yeah. you know so it's it's like it's a little bit like that it's like free climbing and every every kind of meter you climb is an achievement um but you the risk is still there of like falling off and you know there <laughs> Uh, be trending on Twitter for the wrong reasons. So you have to, def- and that's what I mean about having a conversation with your future self. Just like this is great, you're doing really well. So what can, what do you want forty-five-year-old Athena to to be proud of? Yeah, and that's um, that's quite a constructive thing to do. And as long as it's realistic, you can be crazy ambitious and all, but make it realistic and modest as well. And that's a good thing too. Going back to you getting into comedy, because one of the first big things is actually deciding to do it mm. you were um if i'm not mistaken you you working in the public sector prior to comedy i was doing all sorts yeah, yeah, yeah. right okay I, I, I should i should be really frank i only quit my full-time job last november so i've spent a okay. long time doing both things kind of full-time but yeah i was doing all kinds of stuff up until last november yeah and what was it that made you decide in the first place to give stand up a go? Were you sort of, were you the type of person that was always the joker of your friends, or was it just more of an inquis- inquisitive thing to see? Yeah, I want to give this a go, see if I'm any good at it. It's funny. I wasn't a joker, but I was always the funny one. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. it was like it wasn't like oh he's a fiend, she's a bagger, she's a laugh in it. It wasn't like that at all. But I was always the person who would say something that would be funny. You know, okay. and I always, I always had a, a sense of being able to interpret things not differently to other people, but having a brain that would always surprise people with a angle on things they they hadn't come, they hadn't come up with. If that makes sense. So if we were having a conversation, I'd be the one to say something that would make people go, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, 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 like yeah. in a ra- you know in a random kind of way, and the kind of thing that I'd do it and people on the bus would be laughing as well at what I'd said or whatever. And I'd always kind of been aware of that. That's been like a lifelong thing. Like Athena is funny. And then for a little while, this is a huge story actually, for eight years ago, I used to work in this place and I had this manager who sat opposite me and I basically made him laugh every day just because it was just one of those things. And he was like, "You should what, what are you doing here? Why don't you just try doing something? Why don't you try to do something creative? And I was like, all right then. 
but I never did anything with that for ages. I didn't do anything with it at all. And then one day I did, and that was the end of it. <laughs> it sounds very boring, but I did. Oh, another thing was um, money. I needed a bit of money, and I saw how much money like top comedians are making. <laughs> and I thought, so, and I thought, you know, all my whole life, everyone's been saying that, you, you know, your brain is different, you're funny. And all the, then there's, there's these people who, who I don't think are very funny who are like earning millions and millions and millions. So well, why am I here <laughs> in this office, you know, not yeah. earning millions when I yeah. could just be earning? And obviously I learned very quickly that it's, they didn't just get on, they didn't just go to a pub, perform five minutes and then get like, like on onto Live at the Apollo. Like, um, yeah. so I learned that quite quickly. Um, the thing about stand-up is, once you realize you're good at it, once you get, I mean, you have to be humble with it as well at the beginning, because you're never good at it at the beginning, you're shit. But once you realize you've kind of got the tools required to get good at it, and once you realize you've got maybe like the work ethic, and then I had the, um, my life fitted comedy really well. I had a decent job, I had a car, I didn't have any kids at that time. So I could say yes to everything and, and whatever. Um, so once I had realized, oh, I could probably just, just get on with it, that's, that's what I did. You know, um, and I thought to myself, oh, but I did do this one thing. I said every year I have these like goals every year. And if I meet them, I'll keep going. And if I don't meet them, I'll reconsider the time and effort I'm investing into this. That's um, smart. So what, what sort yeah. of goals? Oh, some of them were silly. Like, I mean, I paid for a comedy course. So one of the goals was to earn back what I paid on the course through right. comedy, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Um, yeah. It's like 120 quid or something. But when you start yeah. out, as you know, you don't get paid. And then when you get paid, you get paid like 20 quid. Yeah. Um, things like get booked for 20 minutes or if there was like a particular promoter I really liked, it'd be like, oh, get booked with that promoter. Um, I mean, one of my goals one year was to get onto Mirth Control. <laughs> you know, just, so these are really silly little goals. I'm sure your listeners won't know what Mirth Control is, but they're just, they promote lots of gigs in the country and the gigs are of questionable standard and they are never close. Wherever you live in the country, a Mirth Control gig is not near you. <laughs> it's just weird i don't know how they've managed to construct this kind of circuit but it's like they put pins where all the comedians live and they put pins in all the venues and they made sure there was the maximum amount of distance between comedians and venues it's brilliant um but the guy who runs it jeff's a cool he's a funny guy but uh, it's a cool guy but that but that was generally a thing i was like oh mm. there's this thing called mirth control they pay you you can perform okay i want to get onto their gigs 100%. and that was a goal for like year two or whatever okay so it's one of those weird things it wasn't like Got really, I have got really, I have got an origin story. It's not Planet of the Apes. You know, it's not a really good comedy origin story. It's just like, people said I was funny. I quite like the idea of being funny for money. I quite like the idea of being funny for lots of money. Turns out that doesn't work that way, but I continued um, because it, could, it worked quite well with my day job at the time. And, mm -hmm. um, and I just kept with it. I think it is a good origin story. I think it's always inspiring when you hear of people that have, you know, they're, they're in a, normal job whatever normal means say a mm. office job and then pursue this thing out of curiosity or whatever it is and then make a success out of it that's quite inspiring to hear what was oh, your you. what was your family's reaction to you getting into it have they been fully supportive from the off yeah so i didn't tell anyone at the beginning i just sort of got smart on smart move yeah i think so especially with comedy you you when you start off you're not a comedian you're just kind of doing it you don't if you go to, went to a college and did a life drawing class you wouldn't call yourself an artist like yeah life. so when you're on the open mic circuit and you're and you're clean it's like your first you're fresh and green you know i mean very few people start off and they're like a finished product that 
is like a stand-up. Most people have a lot to learn. I had loads to learn, particularly as someone who didn't have a creative or performing background before. Mm. So I was very, you know, I was very shit. <laughs> you know, uh, to put it to put it mildly. Um, but I, like I said, I was shit. But there was like, it, there was stuff in there was sweet corn in the shit. <laughs> That's a terrible analogy, <laughs> awful analogy. But hopefully, it makes sense. There yeah, get it. Yeah, that were like, oh, this is usable. This is usable. There's something in here. Cool. Um, I didn't, but I didn't tell anyone for that reason because the minute you tell people stuff like that, they want to watch you, um, or they want to know what what your ambitions are, why you're doing it. And I always, I found all of that. A distraction something i said before and i think this is true is i thought if i tell i have to tell people i'm a comedian then i'm not really working hard enough mm. do you know what i mean but eventually bit by bit my my family kind of found out like i remember my brother got told like one of his friends found out because they'd seen me on a flyer or something okay and then and i don't know if you remember this has happened to you but i remember the first time someone put me on a flyer i thought oh my gosh you know like that yeah you know, and it, yeah, it's not a basic. It's not a basic thing. It's a big deal when you've been going for a few months or whatever, and somebody's your face on a flyer, and you've never. I've seen still it. got the first flyer. Yeah, I've got <laughs> not yours, early. mine. I mean, weird, <laughs> yeah. But... <laughs> yeah, move the camera, and there's a big shrine to me. Yeah, but um, framed. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's a big deal. I'd actually, in this moment, just remembered what a big deal it was to see my face in like a glossy flyer. I'd not seen that before in my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's how my brother found out. My mum found out when I was in a newspaper and someone in a church had showed it to her like this is your daughter in it um you know and i think that's nice mm. you know i don't i'm not a i'm a fairly private person anyway um i don't like to be questioned and the comedy lifestyle means that if you know people will question you a lot because it's fascinating to people mm. but it shouldn't the first one or two maybe three years of comedy is not fascinating to me it's humiliating it's hard work it's you know you question yourself a lot uh, it's very unrewarding financially, um, so it's not the kind of thing I would want. I wanted to shout about from the rooftops. I think some of my friends knew because they came as bringers to with me to that bringer gig. So your listeners will know. Sometimes you've got to bring a friend to perform, um, and they thought it was cool. But I kept my circle quite small, and it, it was weird. It wasn't even an intentional thing. It wasn't like, oh my god, this is a top secret. I was just like, I'm just getting on with it. And if people find out, cool. But if they don't find out, I'm not going to tell them proactively. Um, and it's a very healthy attitude. I think, I think so. The worst thing, absolutely the worst thing is, you know, you get those comedy competitions, right? And people perform in them. And they're, they're a lot of new acts, some of the comedy competitions you get through through voting, audience voting. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So some people just bring like 30 of their friends. <laughs> yeah. I just used to think that's so ridiculous. Like, why would you want 30 of your family to think they have to be there to laugh at you? How can you cause a comedian? Like, if I was that person's friend, I'd be like, if you're funny, you don't need me. Like, I want to support you because you are a comedian. I don't want to support you because you, you're going to be one. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I want to support you yeah, when you're there. Yeah. Um, when you're not there, you need, to, you need to do the work. You know, you, you need to do the work. And I'll support you whilst you're doing that. So I'll go to like an open mic club and I'll support you. But I'm not going to like pretend you're good. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so you could just like leapfrog people who are good. Um, so I didn't want to be that person with an army of friends and family who was like, I think it's funny. Like, I'll be funny when my when I'm producing art that is good enough. I'm not funny because of the amount of my friends and family that know I'm doing comedy. Does that make yeah. sense? So I had it that, makes complete sense. Yeah, I had that kind of mentality at the beginning. Um, and I think that, yeah, you're right. I'm glad I did. I'm glad I didn't run around telling people because I was so bad for so long. Have you always been this sort of grounded and 
uh, sensible and mature about your approach <laughs> to things? Or is that something that you've developed over time? Something I say a lot, and I've, people who've listened to me on podcast will have heard me say this. I started comedy fairly late. I was 31 when I first performed, which is obviously not very old, but mm. in the comedy world, lots of people start in their early 20s. They were teenagers. I used to meet 18 year olds and, you know, I met Ed Hedges when he was like 17 or 18 or something. So um, I was mature because I was old. You know, I was yeah. 31, I had, I had a fairly senior job. I had stuff yeah. going on. You know, I was living a slightly more, I was adulting, that's the word now. I was okay. so, I guess I was grounded because in a weird way, I didn't really need comedy to work. So I didn't have that need to be as um, grandiose, at, you know, with, you know, or uh, I didn't, I didn't have to be like, oh, I'm a fiend, I'm a big deal. I'm like, I was a big, this is gonna sound terrible, but I was like, oh, I'm already a big deal. I've already, my life's already kind of cool. I'm, I've done what most people don't get to do. I've got, I've got a career, I've got education, I've got income, I've got disposable income, I've got nice holidays twice a year, you know? So I didn't, I was really fortunate in that I didn't have to kind of have sharp elbows. You know what I'm saying? That kind of sharp exactly elbow mentality. Yeah, you weren't riding on it. Yeah, you weren't riding exactly. it. And, and, but also you weren't, you weren't sort of placing all your, um, your sort like of your, your, your ego to, on it yeah. or anything like no, that. No, 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 exactly. I was already in a place where I was like, I want to be, I was like, I want to be a comedian. I don't want to work in an office the rest of my life. I think yeah. entertainment is a, is a space in which I can create the kind of future for myself that is, that it gives me the creative, the freedom that I want, the happiness that I want, the financial rewards. Um, and I can do the things, the personal things that I want to have to do in my life that I had ambitions to do that they were difficult to do in an office, you know? Um, so that's what I wanted. But I also knew that the position I was in at that time was a good position. Like I also knew that I was contracting, I had flexibility. I was had I was respected by my, the people I worked for. Um, I was able to travel. I was learning lots of cool things. So you're right. I didn't need to become a comedian to feed my ego. My my ego is already being being fed, and and that meant that I didn't necessarily fall into those traps of of kind of you know not not necessarily fully understanding the scene and not having yeah. humility and all, all of that stuff. Uh, not posting however, like videos of your five minute sets within the first few weeks. Yeah, but don't get me wrong. Like, I, make, I, remember, I remember making like a, a show reel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I remember making a show. Uh, there, were, there were some really bad, horrible show reels out there that we all have from, you know, from our very early days. And I remember making a website and stuff like that. So I still, I still try to give it the, the give it all that. Uh, but not to the extent that some people do. Um, and But I think also that kind of mentality held me back a little bit because then when I did start to get quite good, I I probably didn't realise how, you know, I probably didn't do what a lot of people would have done, which is just like r r ride that wave. I think I was way more hesitant. And if anything, I ended up working harder in my day job. The most strenuous and well-paid years of my day job were whilst I was doing comedy. Um, so I was... And I don't know why I did that. I don't know why I put so much focus back into my day job when my comedy was going so well. I think I was just, it was financial security that was worrying me. Um, and also not understanding the comedy scene and not understanding lots of things that I could have done that maybe I, that I didn't do. Meetings with managers and stuff yeah. like that. Um, and social media and all that kind of stuff. But after, then eventually I was like, I kind of caught up with myself. It can bite you in the bum, too much humility. 
you know it yeah. can, you have to know when to you know you have to know when to say you're shit and you have to know when to say you're good that's just as important yeah that's a very good point talking about social media you you said before about you being you know a private person do you find that mm. there's a tension between that and you sort of being quite active on on social media and twitter particularly no i don't think there's tension at all i'm very i set very clear boundaries as to what i share and what i don't share so for example um i don't really talk about my personal life okay you know, in an unabstract way you know it's very abstract if i talk about it um i don't put people friends and family online so if i go out for dinner with friends it's not going on instagram um right as in friends outside of comedy okay like if you're out with four friends in comedy it's going on instagram someone's you know someone's paying yeah, it out of course, there, course yeah um i don't um i kind of so i try to kind of draw a line between this is stuff this is like public realm stuff and this is private realm stuff and so most hopefully what most of what i put out is kind of opinion um funny shit like i'll talk about funny stuff my kids do but i won't identify them i for ages i didn't even put their gender online right that got, that was really hard work just always using gender yeah. now. i kept forgetting um but I, I tend you know that's for me just just commentary i don't really put anything identifiable like i said i talk about relationships um and there are some views i have that i don't put online as well so i'm even okay. selective about the views i have that i put online because um Unless someone practically asks me some questions, I'm not going to answer them. But I think you can be very private whilst being active on social media. You can share, you can share what you want to share. No one forces us to share anything. Sure. Um, I even, I was going to share something. I was going to, I took a picture of a rainbow, right? And then I, I changed my mind from sharing it because I was afraid that people could identify the park. That's oh, all. wow. Okay. <laughs> and I was like, man, what if someone can recognize this park? I don't know where I live. So I was that, I'm that into being very particular about what goes online. It doesn't always look it because my feed is always a bit random, but I'm yeah. quite particular about what goes online, yeah. Do you have like a separate social media home for stuff for friends and family? If you want to nah, post a rainbow, Google, nah. you've got WhatsApp, I've, right? I've got Google Photos. Google yeah. Photos is great. So okay. I've, got Google, oh, I've got a Google account so that, you know, pictures that my family want to see you can see like i've whatsapp you if yeah for sure and all my fa or family member and i've got something to say to you uh, i'll whatsapp you um yeah. you know i love social media i use it a lot i use twitter a lot um you're very good at it you're very good <laughs> at it yeah no because it, considering what you're saying before about not being someone that um in the past when you started out was very good at self-promoting it i think you're really good at it in respect that you take it like a few different tiered approach in terms of you you sort of you state opinions you create debate you're not a prisoner to your own humor or trying to be a comedian all the time which i think is quite no. healthy i like twitter because it's stream of conscience so, so i just kind of yeah. just think things and i think oh, i'm going to tweet that yeah like and i saw it's... i saw a, a, you posed a very controversial question i saw recently that i just wanted to flag yeah um, go on. <laughs> do, do you think the first person to dunk a biscuit in their tea was laughed at you know so i i, <laughs> I wouldn't have the balls to post that <laughs> so stuff like that is like i genuinely think and I, guess what i would have been drinking a cup of tea dunking a biscuit going, yeah, yeah. someone and i just i just imagined like a table and people sat around the table and someone just picked up a biscuit and puts it in their tea and everyone's like steve what the fuck are you doing like yeah, yeah. you just put a biscuit in your tea right um so i like having i think twitter is so great for for comedians that would be a that's a comedy thought isn't it that's a sketch isn't it yeah for sure um, and twitter is great because you can have these it's almost like if we didn't have twitter all these thoughts would be in our brain just 
pardon that, like a pressure cooker. Now I can tweet it. I never think about it again. It's gone. The idea is out there now. So I like, and I'm a procrastinator, huge procrastinator. I can't do anything without doing 10 other small unrelated and random tasks first. So Twitter is okay. wonderful. So if I've got to sit down and I've got to like edit something, I've actually got, I've got an editing job to do now and I've been putting it off um, like all week. And I've been just doing bits of it, but I've got to finish it today. And before I sit down to do it, I'm going to go on Twitter. I'm going to splast out like three tweets and I'm going to sit down and do the job. And that, that will work fine for me. And those tweets, when you write them, you literally, will you just be writing whatever comes to your mind or will you actually deliberate, think about it and then mm. post? I very rarely do, but they're normally, like I said, it's very stream of conscience. And it's not even yeah. like I'm going to tweet today. It normally just comes into my brain. I'm like, oh, I'm going to put that. Like, um, it's, yeah, it's very, uh, I, yeah, it's, I like it. It's, it entertains me. And I like the banter. Um, and I like, it's, it's, Twitter's a great record of our thoughts. I mean, what, you know that, you know that Black Mirror episode where, um, someone gets resurrected as like an android and they use their social media to, to kind of, get his speech right i mean that's that's twitter isn't it mm. that's i noticed today i've done like, i've done about fifty one thousand tweets in my wow. twitter career so you could use my twitter account that's and just clone me and but in a weird way i like that i like that there's a record of my brain out there online that's weird right well there's an article i read recently where i think so that's where we're heading in terms of social media companies they're going to clone either your tweets or your dms etc and then use that to create your future social media profile once you're dead it's insane <laughs> it's it, or not social media profile happen. or they'll communicate on your behalf as you having cloned all your his, your historic messages and imagine that they're funnier than me like <laughs> just imagine if they're better and just sharper you know like there's always someone who's like that much comes up you know someone does a tweet and it's just brilliant and you think mm. i wish i'd written that that's so great so yeah that'd be really annoying if, if they would did a better version of me than me uh, but they could eat with with 51 with that much data that could easily be done yeah absolutely uh, which is like a, i don't find it scary though i i, I think it's great a, a, a public record of all of our thoughts i mean See, i go the I opposite way with it i still i guess i'm still quite private in that respect i don't necessarily want people to know all my thoughts and opinions oh but then i don't forget i'm very particular about what ones i share yeah so yeah, when you yeah. when you when you when you when you hear the read the tweets of dead athena it's not the <laughs> it's not the real thing it's just the, what she wanted to show you yeah you know, okay. and all the other dark all the scary stuff will, will go i'll take that to the, take grave. It to the grave yeah, yeah. perfect Hello, sorry to interrupt in the middle of this insightful conversation, which I'm enjoying, I'm sure, just as much as you are. But I need to give you guys a little reminder. Uh, if you like this conversation, this episode, if you like balancing acts in general, then please do subscribe to us, rate and review us because it makes the world of difference. And the more reviews we get, the more rates we get, the more people can discover the podcast and we can make it go viral, whatever that means. OK, back to the chat. So you obviously, um, you've got your own podcast, Keeping Athena Company. I wanted to ask you, and it kind of ties in with Twitter because you know, I, you know, I respect that you put things out there and you are able to debate with people about different subject matters. In terms of your guests on, on your podcast, and I ask this just from my own um, recent <laughs> personal experience, would you actively invite people on? who have a very different view and opinion on, on things, whether it be political or otherwise, 
for for conversation? And if so, would you be concerned that you would be giving them a platform to air opinions that you don't necessarily abide or agree with? Um, yes, I would. Um, I think I have had people on who we on, we have we hold different positions on things because everyone on the podcast is someone I consider a friend or a professional friend at least as a minimum. Um, so I wouldn't. I wouldn't have someone incredibly objectionable on my podcast because the concept of the podcast is people literally come to keep my company. Like they're just friends that hang out with me. So um, I guess I wouldn't deliberately do something like that to get like attention. I think that I'm not right about everything. So the barometer of, you know, righteousness isn't whether or not you agree with me or not. So if someone disagrees with me on something, that wouldn't disqualify them automatically from the podcast. I think... Um, I guess the way you're going with this is, you know, is it worth platforming alternative views that are, um, you know, the consensus is that they're unprogressive? The answer is, well, no. If the consensus is they're unprogressive views, then why would you want people to keep talking about them? Um, yeah. I think there's a fairly fine, not fine, I think there's a fairly well-defined line between um, decent person and dickhead. <laughs> like, and I, yeah, I get yeah, being yeah. bored that there's this denial of this line like it's a really there's a really it's a really clear line that separates good people from fucking annoying people and people who are on the annoying side of the line I think you know we need to stop having this kind of deliberation about them like they're just cunts excuse my language um and so would I have a cunt on my podcast well no I wouldn't be friends with one but at the same time, I like, I've got, I mean, if you've seen my podcast, I've got all kinds of people in my podcast who come from all walks of life. It's not just me interviewing creatives. I've got friends who are writers and psychologists and, and yeah. all kinds of lovely stuff on it, you know, so all kind of lovely things, PhD students and things. So it's about conversation and conversation doesn't happen with people who are exactly, or it does happen, but it's not as interesting if you've got two people who are exactly the same. Right. Um, so um, I, I welcome like challenge for most of my views. Um, I mean, look, I've I've got I've got views people don't like. I don't like the EU. I'm a Remainer, but the EU is a horrible institution. It was infuriating in 2016 when people were like, "Oh my god, I don't want to use the EU. The EU is amazing. Like the EU lets fucking immigrants drown in the Mediterranean every day. <laughs> like every the EU yeah. is a white supremacist project. It's well, designed." It's, it's- you know, so, it's like it, it almost became romanticized and, you know, and, and, and this is probably going to sound controversial as well, but that also is applicable to, you know, areas of the NHS. It's not just all it always been like this dream. There's parts of it that have been bloated over the years as well. Obviously, I love the NHS, but I feel like sometimes people can um, forget these things or just wash over them, you know. It's narrative. It's narrative. It makes sense to say that NHS is great, but you know, about 10, 15 years ago, they spent ten billion pounds on an IT system that didn't work. <laughs> you know, it's like I'm not. It's just um, it, you know, it's it's um, and I mean, I think you know, people are starting to have a conversation now about empire and NHS. There's, if there's no empire, there's no NHS. Uh, similarly, if there's no immigrant labour, there was no NHS. You know, everyone's like, oh, you know, it's so great that these windows people came to be nurses. It's like that was a demand you made on these you know you saw us as resources and you know it's not like that was our dream <laughs> you know yeah. like it's it's so just like you're right the road romanticizing is very accurate and apt um so there's loads you know there's loads that people might you know talk to me i'm not a socialist i don't like jamie corbyn you know that that used to get people's backs up uh, <laughs> i thought he was i when when people said he's unelectable i was like yes he is <laughs> he's clearly unelectable he, you know i mean he can't make a decision um 
you have to be a very particular kind of leader when you're leader of the opposition. You can't be a real leader because you have no power. So I think people would say, I'm sure he would have made a good prime minister as it, ha as it happens, but he wasn't a good leader of the opposition, which is a different job. Um, people forgot that. Um, so I had, you know, I myself had lots of opinions that people didn't share, um, or I have lots of opinions that people don't share. So I, and I welcome that because that's, that's conversation. Conversation isn't, yes, I agree, brilliant. Yes, I agree, brilliant. Well, join me next time. I'm keeping the company where I agree with people. Um, so, but that, and also I think it's a really good sign when you know people who disagree with you. Because you caught, like, why would you want to know people who just agreed with you all the time? Like, I think it's a good thing to have circles that have to have variety in your circle. It's not like I go around looking for people to disagree with. I'm not like one of these people always looking for a fight, but I don't judge people by their opinions. I might judge people based on their interpretation of facts. You know, I don't like anti-vaxxers, you know, I will judge them. I, we share different opinions, but the issue isn't the different opinions. The issue is they're looking at facts and they're throwing them out the window. Mm. So that's really odd to me. I don't mind people being cynical about vaccines. Why shouldn't we be cynical about them? It's all a bit quick, <laughs> you know, but you know, anti-vaxxers annoy me. Uh, forgotten the question, but I guess did you, did you grow up um, in a in a household that encouraged debate? That's an interesting question. Um, I think so. Yeah, I get. To, I've got a twin brother. That's good. Ah, I did. Brother. I didn't know that. So that's part of the privacy there, is it? I I had no idea. Or is that something you put oh, out before? Oh, that's interesting. No, I talk about it in my stand up, but I guess oh, I okay. I, yeah, you know, I missed that. But I wouldn't generally, um, you know. I don't, again, like I don't go, I, you know, it's not, I'm a twin, hashtag twin. It's like, <laughs> you know, I'm, I don't make a big deal about it. Um, but Are got, you close? So, yeah, more so now. He lives in Australia now. Oh, but wow. we had, um, this is quite, well. so we had babies on the same day um, a couple of years ago. So we had at my first, we had, he had his first at the same time, same day. Uh, so that made us closer for sure. Is that a common occurrence between twins? I feel like it's not, but it, sh it's, it should be. It's not be. common. I should, I should make a bigger deal out of this. It's a fucking ridiculous. That is the ridiculous. It's just what, like, if I go into it, I won't go into it, but it's just like everything, like I, my baby was really late. His was like a little early and stuff, but it's a mad coincidence. It's crazy. I, I, I keep forgetting that I haven't gotten over it. I haven't gotten over how mad the coincidence was yet. It's just incredible. So when, when I was pregnant with my second, my first thought was, please don't be pregnant. Have your girlfriend not be pregnant right now because it would just be <laughs> awful. Um, we can't be that in sync. Do you know what I mean? One time is, is fine, but there's two times. People will think we tech, you know, people think we, we know we're fucking WhatsApping each other while we're doing the deed. So, it's not, <laughs> so luckily it wasn't the case. Um, but, uh, but are we close? No, I would say it wasn't necessarily debate, but I would say I engendered my own critical thought processes through my interest as a young person. So I used to like to read a lot. I was always quite a questioning person. Um, and that was generally encouraged in my household, like, edu you know, educating yourself. And we, we had to do a lot of homeschooling at home. So we went to school and we'd come home, we'd have to do more fucking school. Like, that, you know, my mum my and my dad would go to Derek Smith and buy all those like, but you know, you get like education books, like textbooks, whatever, you just, yeah, so we'd have to do that. So I think that probably made me a bit more um open to debating conversation and stuff as i got older mm. but it wouldn't, we weren't that kind of take we weren't the kind of household where we'd sit around the table and discuss the news you know it wasn't like that at all we liked movies and music so and computers and, and computer games um but i was generally always a bit thirsty for 
for knowledge and I was always questioning things. So that, that was probably where, that's probably where it comes from. And you still read loads now? I tried to, it's hard, man, when you've got a couple of, uh, couple of kids. I don't read as much as I used to, um, but I've got, I've literally got like five or six books piled up that I need to get through that I didn't read last year, get through last year. But yeah, I'm definitely a champion of, of reading, which is really difficult. Do you know the average reading age of this country is about 12? You know that? I did not, this is, no. This is true, yeah. Um, so well, the reason I say that is because sort of last year when we was all kind of beside ourselves, thinking about race and inequality, we were saying, well, everyone read a book. And not everyone has that option because a lot of these books are not accessible like to 12 year olds. Um, so I do think reading is such a, a, one, a important thing to establish early in life because most of the answers we have, we, we seek are in books. Yeah. You know, most, this is just the reality. Most of the one thing that I've been toying with recently or just trying to mull over is that you can read, well, there's books and then there's articles and in articles, somebody expresses an opinion on a subject matter and then you read another article and it's the complete opposite. And yeah. so then how do you work through that to decide your view on those two things, but also find a way to create an original view or an original opinion based on all those materials? Well, you almost, you've almost asked, how do you write a joke? You know, how do you create, <laughs> how do you get an angle on something? Um, I'll tell you, so I'll tell you, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm not going to answer your question, but I'm going to give you an example of something. So do you remember when Donald Trump was having his state visit and everyone was protesting it? Yeah. My position at the time was you're all embarrassing yourselves. We have state visits all the time from people who are horrible and you only care about Trump because you understand about America, but you don't understand about Saudi Arabia and all these other places. Mm. And then I was like, how hypocritical to say we don't want Trump to come here because he's racist because like Britain is not a racism free zone. Do you know what I mean? Like he's not like he's going to go through customs and they're going to stop him because they're oh, sorry, sorry, Donald Trump, you've got some quite unsavory views there. And I wrote this joke about how we didn't want Trump to come because he's like, you know, because we invented racism and he's got like Prosecco racism. We're like champagne racists, <laughs> you know, and we're Prosecco racists. So, and okay. the reason I'm just relaying that bit of the, the, that is like, that's an angle, isn't it? That's kind mm. of like, and you would, read, you would read an article saying Trump is probably shouldn't be allowed here. You'd read an article saying Trump should be allowed here because everyone's allowed. But actually the view is he's an awful person, but at the same time, it's not going to achieve much pointing at people and saying they're awful when they're coming to a place which is awful. And at the time Trump was coming here, you know, people are being deported to their deaths. It's, it's staggering. You know, people are literally being dragged out, of their, dragged out of their homes with two weeks notice, put onto planes, sent to um, countries of, of quote unquote origin, which they're not places, which were not countries of origin, but that's what the time of us said, and they were left to die. And we were protesting Trump, you know? So um, it's, you know, it's, it's all about, I think what you have to be is a truth seeker which sounds horrible because it makes you sound like a kind of a, somebody who put tinfoil on their head and, you know, like you can handle the truth kind of nutcase, but you just have to kind of, you know, when you're making a fish curry, you always squeeze half a lemon in at the end, cuts through the fat, makes it taste really nice. And you want to be that like half a lemon. You want to cut through the fat and you want to say, well, this is noise, but if you, when we dial it down, what are we, what's really going on here? And the only thing that, you know, the only way you could get through that is just kind of like being able to, absorb information objectively and with knowledge you know so i have knowledge of what racism is and where it comes from i know that racism is a very british thing <laughs> it's mm. incredibly british it could nothing is more british than racism and li britain literally invented racism through stuff called the barbados slave codes this is history um i happen to know that we have state visits for all kinds of people because they're not nice but they have lots of money and we want money mm -hmm. as a state um i know i know something to know that 
no, you know, white middle class people love to say they hate racism, but mm. they love to do nothing about it. <laughs> like, I was good because so, I was good, I was going to ask you on that, you know, with what, everything that went on with BLM, etc. Quite a few of my f uh, friends were black and, and work in comedy, or not even work in comedy, to be honest. When I was talking to them about it, were tired of white people asking what <laughs> they can do to help and if they're okay. What was your kind of reaction to that? Were you encouraging that, or and 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 if they did ask what they can do to help, what was your answer? This is, I mean, so was it tiring? It was very a very weird couple of weeks for a while. I think it suddenly felt like I described it as speak it being fluent in a language no one else understood. And then overnight, everyone understood the language. And so imagine not ever being heard and then all of it and understood. And all of a sudden everyone is like, so Athena, da, da, da. and you're like, wow, that you didn't, you know, before that was I like, speaking no racism, I don't understand. And all of a sudden it's like, I understand you. So that was just like a bit overwhelming, you know? And my answer to anybody who says, what can I do? What can I do? And I'm just like, put money in black people's pockets. <laughs> Not literally, of course. Um, the racism we have in the world globally, let's talk about UK, is so structural and so embedded into systems. It is not even conceivable that you or me or anyone as an individual could do anything about it. It's inconceivable. This, this racism is centuries old. It's in the systems we have. It's in the education system. It's in the law system. I was telling, I was telling something the other day, I had this joke, basically. And the joke, basically, my mum's Indian. And it, when I tell this joke, when I used to say the joke, joke was, when I was born, I was the only black person in the room. And the whole point of the joke was to explain, I'm cool being the only black person here. I was born that way. But then one day after a gig, someone came up to me and said, oh, that joke about having a single mum really cracked me up, right? It wasn't a joke about having a single mum, but because of racism, that person couldn't hear that joke without thinking I was talking about my dad being absent. Right. You know? yeah, I was just yeah, doing yeah. a silly joke about my mum being Indian <laughs> and therefore yeah. and an assumption that the doctors are white. So I'm the only black person in the room. It was never, but because of racism, and that's what I mean, what we mean, like everything that you've ever learned in your life um, that's been absorbed deliberately or undeliberately or indeliberately, whatever the word is, is, is making you come to conclusions you don't even realize are offensive, right? Mm -hmm. And that's one example. Think of the many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of kind of, of ideas and opinions and, that people have that, I mean, there's 60 million of us in this country. So what I'm trying to say is as an individual, there's nothing you can do to change that. But what we can do is kind of outmaneuver it. So put money back in people's office, give, you know, amplify black people, give black people work, sh shop in black businesses. Um, where do you put your money? Capitalism and racism go hand in hand. So think about, do you need to upgrade your phone every every year? Um, are you throwing too much stuff away? Are you consuming too much stuff? You know, um, you know, leading an anti-capitalist life and anti-racist life are the, are the two things. But I, I think it, it does come down to what you can do as an individual. And that is, what can we do? How do you spend our money? How can we put black people in pitch situations where they can be remunerated for the work that they do? Um, and all the other stuff will have to just get figure itself out in the wash you know it's so yeah, hard, yeah. hard but that's that's my and it's not good advice for that i'm giving by the way because i don't have the answers <laughs> my advice is terrible i don't have the answers um but i would like uh, just to be positive like a lot of the work i was doing last year and a lot of the opportunities i have um and i say positive but it isn't that positive but it is a good thing came from people wanting to make a change to their mm. writers rooms and to the way they work i mean there's some places that there are some jobs that i did that i've been trying to do for ages.
And then I did them and it, it was like, oh, this is not even a big deal. What was the problem? So I think it's made people question why they interrogate the inclusion of black and brown people into spaces more than white people, mm. you know, um, which is good. Um, so there was a reaction, certainly, that I, that I benefited from. But, it, it, you know, like I said, that's, that is what, what I would say to people who ask what they can do. And it's not even the right answer. It's just an answer. Yeah, but it's, so a, start, it's a starting point, at least, isn't it? Um, yeah. You won uh, the BBC Felix Dexter bursary, mm. um, which was obviously a, a really, that, that's quite a big thing. But did you find the term for it being described as, as a, a BAME up-and-coming comedy writers problematic Felix Dex is not BAME he's a black man okay? right so right. <laughs> the, um, I do find the term BAME problematic and it's not often used in the correct way mm. if the BBC wants to offer a, a bursary for all people who aren't white that's fair enough but Felix Dex has suffered from a specific kind of racism and anti-black racism but you know so that would be my observation on that like if we really wanted to address Felix Dexter's issue and everyone, I think he's, their consensus is he's, you know, one of the finest comedians we've produced that why he didn't get his own sitcoms, why he wasn't missing Saturday night. We'll never know. Well, we do know because he was black. It wasn't because he was BAME. <laughs> so if we want yeah. to talk about that, then, the, you know, then that's it. However, you know, at the same time, that's, you know, diversity is diversity. Anyone who, who gets that award, if they're not white, that's, there is a benefit. Are you, what are you supposed to do, have an award for everyone? Like, mm -hmm, but if, mm -hmm. you know, if that award was, was constructed to benefit, to talk about the barriers he faced, it should probably be a black award. Um, but I'm not necessarily against it being open to BAME people. I think it highlights the problem with the word BAME is that when you use that word, it very rarely addresses the subject you're talking about. Actually, I'll give you an example. I read a Guardian article a couple of days ago. It was about um, vaccine cynicism in the Muslim community. It's very clear. I read the article and it, it spoke to various Muslim um, representatives um, and members of the community of various Muslim communities. And it was about Muslim conversations about the vaccine. And the headline was BAME people aren't taking the vaccine, which is not what the article is about. <laughs> you know, right, you know yeah. do you, you, if, they, if they'd gone to an Asian person, a South Asian person, an East Asian person, a black person, a Mexican person, a Venezuelan person, a Filipino, then call it BAME. You've listed loads of people. Yeah, they're so, just lumping everyone into one. Precisely. Into that and, also, and also you're, you, you're not addressing with the particular problem which you're just, which the article was about, which is there was a, a, a particular narrative around the vaccine that is putting off um, putting off Muslim people, which, and people. There's a rumor that the vaccines have pork in them, incident that that they're not halal. So that's not a BAME issue. That's a Muslim issue, right? Yeah. And by the way, white people can be Muslim. So even saying BAME is just silly. Like half of you know Eastern Europe is Muslim. They're white people. So um, it's very very strange terminology. I think people use the word BAME because um it's they're hiding from people never like to use the word black if someone wants to find me in a room they'll be like oh that there's a give it to the girl in the white shirt but if you really want to find me just say give it to the black girl in the white shirt do you know what i mean that's yeah. like way but people don't like and so i think bame comes from that it there's was a brilliant sketch on that by the way have you, have you come across ty campbell I think it's I Ty yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I, uh, he yes, did a brilliant sketch on that. I know exactly the sketch you're talking about. Yeah, it's yeah. so exactly. good. <laughs> uh, yeah, Ty's great. Uh, so, um, <laughs> yeah, he, he. We don't like it. The other thing as well is we white supremacy is really interesting thing that we all hate it, but we all do things that uphold it. And the idea there's a line, and white people are on one side of the line, 
and everyone else on the other side is just fucking garbage. Like yeah. we are not deviations from whiteness, but the term BAMI implies that we are. Um, we are the global majority. If anything, we need a name for white people. You know, like um, it's it's really, that really enforces the idea that, like I said, you're not white, so you're just something else. And it's like, well, what, what's that something else? Um, I, don't, I think that there is still space to use that word because white supremacy still exists. So sometimes we do need to talk about something. Um, so, you know, it, we do need to say things like, when people say BAMI people are more likely to die from COVID, that's probably a correct thing to say. However, you then need to say, well, to what degrees? You know, who is more or less likely to? But so there's a space for it. But it's, there isn't so much space that matches the frequency that I see it using, used with now, you know. And it is worrying that we haven't got to a stage where we're, we're being specific about what we're talking about when it comes to people who are not white. Because, I mean, let me put it to you. We're in Europe, there's probably about 300 million people in Western Europe, yeah? Mm-hmm. Most of whom are white. Many, some are not white. Really there were a billion people in China. There's a billion people in India, you know, like it's, it's you're, what if you're embarrassing yourselves <laughs> by trying to say, oh, you lot over there. Like, no, it's you lot over there. It's you, <laughs> none of you. There's hardly any of you, you know, and to just kind of put all, to kind of put us into one kind of box, you know, we're in this massive, huge box and you guys are in this tiny little box because there's not many of you guys just globally. It's getting boring now, um, just culturally, um economically you know people who aren't white are just so much we just outnumber you and we just come in in such huge quantity just a weird word to say with humans weird quantities of humans but i'll, I'll, I'll go with it that you know bami's need is a very obsolete term for for most so most of the time when it's used it's, it's in, in, used in a very obsolete and unhelpful way um but going back to your question about felix dexter you know the bbc have decided that that bursary should be open for everyone and anyone who gets it will benefit from it. So I'm not, I don't object to that, but I do think it raises Felix Dexter's very particular issue with the industry, which is that he was a black man. Mm. Did you find it useful being on that? Paid. It's yeah. a bursary, right? So I, I got okay, it. So it Just, wasn't a program as well. Cause you did the BBC writers room. So it wasn't like that kind of experience where they put you through different um, No, it areas. wasn't. It was, okay. it was basically an opportunity to write, to work on my pilot whilst getting a, a very modest bit of remuneration. Most of the time when we write, we're not getting paid. Yeah. So basically, to put it bluntly, it was development. Okay. You know, like, um, so yeah, and it was useful. It forced me to quit my job. I would not have quit my job. If I okay, that was a catalyst. Yeah, 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 because it was right. a full-time. It was full-time. I had to be present full-time. Um, so it wasn't possible to do both jobs. Um, it gave me huge confidence. It definitely, when you know what I was talking about earlier about you look at your credentials and it helps you combat imposter syndrome. Mm-hmm. It made me, it made me really able to be in places and feel like, Oh, I'm not just on work experience now. Like this is, I go to the BBC every day. I can photocopy for free. You know what I mean? I can steal the notepads. This is my job now. Like, so I was better, you know, I did some of my best work last year, I think purely not because I had creatively become better, but just my brain was like, you, this is what you do for a living now. You know, someone's read something and decided that this makes you worthy of this kind of investment. And that kind of encouragement made me, gave me huge confidence when I was, you know, writing stuff for people and 
and being in certain writers' rooms and whatever. And also to develop further projects, because uh, I've written two more scripts since then, which I would never would have written, you know, without without that encouragement. And so, it yeah, if someone, of course it's going to help you. If you're a writer and someone says, you're so good, we're going to pay you for six months to continue writing. And then we're going to, you know, really champion you. Mm-hmm. Then if that doesn't help you, um, you're in trouble, man. Like, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say, oh, you do it and you'll get, I mean, nothing, the project went nowhere, by the way. Like, it's not okay. like, as projects tend not to yeah, do. Yeah, they really like, do, yeah. yeah. Yeah, which just goes to show, like, what I went, the support I had, and it was still like, you know, computer says no. But the, you know, that I still had loads of other stuff come out of it that, that more than made up for that disappointment. Um, so, okay. Yeah. And what was what would be the one if you had one takeaway from the BBC Writers Room experience? What would be the one takeaway in terms of something that you learned technically that you've since applied to your to your writing projects? Oh, technically, um, yeah, character. Okay. You know, yeah, character, character, character. If you have good characters, that you're halfway to writing your jokes. You're halfway to writing funny stuff. But if you're, tr- as a comedian, what you try to do first is you try to write your jokes and you don't think about character so much. But I s- was, one of the things I was really supported to do whilst on the bursary and whilst doing the writer's room was just watch as much comedy as well. And I watched comedy before, but really watch it. Mm. And you start to see the in- the consistencies that certain amazing sitcoms have, for example, because sitcom writing was kind of what I was going to and still am. Um, and character is the big one. And what I actually just read this on Twitter and I apologize. I don't remember the person who said it. It was off of a Twitter thread that someone was sharing about writing advice. And it was, I just remembered it because it was consistent with what I learned. It, and it basically was like, make, you know, make your characters so strong and so bold. They sound ridiculous. It's the actor's job to make them not sound ridiculous. It's mm. your job to just be bold and blatant. And once I learned to make my writing really unsubtle, that was like opening a safe. And I was like, oh, an embarrassment of comedy riches. And then you look at all your favorite comedies. One of my favorite comedies is Kimmy Schmidt, right? All the characters there are ridiculous. Like, imagine writing these, these like Titus. You know, it's, he's ridiculous. I'd have been there going, he loves Barbies. That's ridiculous. And now I'm like, oh my God, you, your characters have to be so ridiculous when you're writing funny stuff. And then your actors will be so good, you won't even realize they're ridiculous. So that's character, a great character, character. That's yeah, a really character, good point. Character, character. yeah. And, uh, yeah, I haven't, haven't thought about it that way before. That's really, really interesting. Okay, I'm going to ask you two more questions because I've taken up a lot of your time. Thank you um, for sitting and chatting with me. First is, I know you're a voracious uh, reader. So um, are there any books that stand out to you that have had a, a massive impact on you over the course of oh, your life? And it doesn't oh have gosh. to be related to, to comedy or writing, just, and that's, that's quite general. Yeah, let me do, I'm just going to do the two bits that come to my head. And it's, it's so random. So this is, the first one is a book, a very famous book called The English Patient by Michael Indarchi, who's a wonderful writer. And you might have seen the film. It's a great film. It's a great book. Michael Indarchi is such a good writer that there are scenes that he writes about in that book that I still have visions of in my brain. And I don't know why I thought of that. I must have just seen the book on a bookshelf. But that would be one book. So I highly recommend that book. Really good book. Great film. But it's a really great book. Um, so it's not, and it's not inspired. You know, I don't wake up in, every day and look at the English patient. What a great... You know, it's just... But if someone... As a creative, 
you know, I just think he achieved something with that book. That's really special. And in terms of plot as well, great story. It's a wicked story. Okay. Um, so that's a random, a random one for you. Um, but it's a great book. Um, a second book, uh, Their Eyes Were Watching God, I think, okay. by Zora Neale Hurston. Because it's just, a, again, really good book. As a, it's a really, if you look, if someone wants to read a book, to read like a pro-black book, you know, it's Black Lives Matter. I, I, something, I'll, I'll go back to your question about what do I recommend? I definitely recommend reading black art that has fuck all to do with racism. You know okay. what I mean? Like, don't yeah. just go out and read a book about, you know, why I don't talk to white people about race, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Read a black book that is just about a woman who gets married, then gets divorced, which is what their eyes are watching God is about. Because mm. guess what? We don't wake up every day and talk about racism. We're, we're just, we're made out of the same stuff as everyone else. And, and we just do that. And I'll give, can, I give, can I give you a third book? Of course, My yes. My Sister the Serial Killer is a really good example of that. Like, okay. we just live. Do you know what I mean? Like we don't, yeah. it's, we don't live as black people. We just live. And a really good way to engender that and to just get that into our brain, just to consume the art we make, that has nothing to do with race. Uh, that is about our lives and our world and our cultures. Um, and so The Eyes Are Watching God and My Sister the Serial Killer are two great novels to just enjoy. Enjoy. Don't learn. Do you know what I mean? Don't feel guilty. And you're giving writers those two writers money too one has passed away sadly but her estate hopefully will get that money um but yeah that's what, okay. I, that's what i'd say all right fantastic um and i, I lied I've, i have actually got there's, there's one more question which i should have <laughs> asked you earlier it was because it's part of the theme of the podcast what do you do outside of your your work what, what do you do to unwind and relax are you a spiritual person do you meditate what's your what's your vibe athena um i cook okay yeah i do like to get in the kitchen i like to cook um, I like to, I'm starting to get back into like, just I used to train a lot. I, okay. I, I call it training or like exercise. That's how deep it was. Okay. <laughs> was I competing anywhere? No. Did anyone care? No. But, uh, so I'm getting back into that now, especially because I'm not having any more children. So I'm getting, you know, I'm, you know, I'm getting, putting more time into my day to do my yoga and, and do that. I find that quite, uh, I find that quite thing. I know it sounds boring, but parenting is just the most wonderful thing. I love, I carve out time to spend my kids in the day, you know, there's nothing, teaching a child the alphabet, it's just fucking brilliant. You know what I mean? It's just lovely. It's just, it's wonderful. It's wonderful. I do it. It's, I get more out of it than they do. So parenting is, you know, really, I know it's supposed to parent. It's not, I shouldn't really say it's my pastime, but it's, I do make a real point of kind of saying this is me and baby time now. And, and I, I do that. Yeah. Um, what else? I, and I watch a lot of I watch a lot of TV now. I watch a lot of comedy and movies. Me and my partner, we just watch a lot. And I I I call I call it homework, so it's okay to do. Yeah, yeah I I completely agree with you. Even when I switch off and I'm not analysing it, because there are some times where I will switch off and I'll just be sucked into the show. Yeah, I guess subconsciously you're always taking things in, aren't you? Oh, you always. Even if it's just admiration. You know, yeah. even if it's just admiration. So, and sometimes the admiration is, how did you get to film that? It's shit. How did, they, how did you get the green light? It's rubbish. <laughs> you know, sometimes it's like, if that got the green light, then I, then I got to, you know, the stuff is going to happen for me. So sometimes it's yeah. like, sometimes that, I get that kind of uh, encouragement as well. Um, but yeah, lo- I, I mean, I do loads. I like, to, I like to be outside. I mean, holidays and just going out. It's yeah. the one, some of the things that I used to do the most, we can't do anymore. Just sure. going to get, I was saying to a friend, like, I miss going out for a pizza. You know, I miss this 
hanging out with two people eating a really big pizza and drinking a glass of wine and stuff like that like boring ordinary middle class shit mm. um but um yeah so hopefully that'll come back but i do yeah you've got to walk away from your desk you definitely got to walk away from your desk every now and again 100 sure. final question is what does the idea of balance mean to you or not balance is actually for me about expectations you know like um what you expect out of your day you know you're not what you expect out of what you're going to achieve our chances of success as writers are really low as in authored commissioned writers i think as writers in writers rooms and stuff like that i think yeah you can you can get a foot into the industry and fine but our chances of success in terms of like getting shit made and whatever they're still quite low so it sounds a bit boring but you've got to make sure you get joy from other places you know you've got to make mm. sure other things give you joy and if they don't find something um, even if it's other people's success or, or another skill or, or whatever. So balance is that, but all that links to expectations. So just, I manage my expectations about everything. I manage my expectations about my breakfast, you know, I manage my, you know, like, oh, I might burn the toast today. So, so, so just, expect, just manage your expectations for everything and be realistic and find joy in places other than the things that, you know, when you're not in control of something, you can be in control of a lot of what you do, but when you're not in control, you need to be, find enjoying things you have complete control over. Mm. That helps a lot. That is a superb answer. Where is best for people to follow you in and keep up with your work and what you're up to? Well, go and find the picture of a rainbow and find out the park that I live near and find me there. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is your um, mission. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's your, it's like a little, a little treasure hunt. Um, my podcast is called Keep Anything in the Company. It's super easy to find. Um, and I guess like follow me on Twitter. Uh, I'm very easy to find. Come say hello um, on Twitter. That'd be cool. Yeah, that'd be nice. Great. Athena, thanks so much. It's been great speaking uh, with you. It's been a pleasure. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.